Hi there, I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of July 31st, 2023. In the news... After months of negotiations, state lawmakers finally struck a deal that will allow Maricopa County voters to decide whether or not to extend a half-cent sales tax earmarked for transportation projects. But as Kirsten Dorman reports, Republican lawmakers did all they could to restrict where and how those tax dollars can be used to fund the Valley's light rail system. Valley Transit officials have spent more than a decade planning to build a 1.4-mile light rail extension to the Arizona Capitol. They planned to run tracks west on Washington Street, loop around the Capitol on 19th Avenue, and run back downtown on Jefferson Street. Republican State House Speaker Ben Toma says he originally thought the plan was a joke. What I'm offended by is the, the idea that it would come effectively on Adams, loop around on 19th, and come back on Jefferson. In other words, any, every re- legislator would have to literally cross this thing two or three times a day just to get to their parking lot. The Capitol extension became a sticking point for Republican lawmakers in heated negotiations over what's known as Proposition 400, a half-cent sales tax that's funded major road and public transportation projects in the Valley for the past four decades. Voters will have the final say over whether or not to extend the tax another 20 years. The bill approved by lawmakers and signed by Governor Katie Hobbs only crafted the question voters will be asked on the ballot in 2024. But that question includes a key demand from Republican lawmakers, a 150-foot buffer around the Capitol designed to derail the Capitol extension as planned. It is not the plan I would have preferred. Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego says years of planning and millions of dollars have gone into the Capitol extension plan. I would have loved to see that direct light rail extension bringing so many people closer to democracy. But just because the light rail won't come directly to the Capitol doesn't mean it can't run nearby. Jessica Mefford Miller is Valley Metro's CEO. Valley Metro is already working with our partners at the City of Phoenix, Maricopa Association of Governments, and the Federal Transit Administration to take a fresh look at the alignment for the Capital Extension Project and come up with an alternative. Mefford Miller says it's too soon to say what that alternative might be, but the Capital Extension is too important to future light rail expansion to be tossed aside. Mefford Miller says the Capital Extension would also open up a path to extend light rail along the I-10 corridor. She says it's a major priority for West Phoenix and the city overall. And helps alleviate congestion on some of the busiest highway here in the Valley. Valley Transit leaders will go back to the drawing board and seek community involvement to secure approval for a new Capital-adjacent plan. This prohibition on light rail within the Capital Corridor does lengthen the process. It will also very likely increase the project budget. It's not just the Capital extension that's impacted by the new Prop 400. Republicans also negotiated a ban on any future revenue from the half-cent sales tax being used for any expansion of the light rail. That'll make it more difficult to find funding to expand a system built in large part with federal grants. Each of those awards requires that we have a regional or local funding source to provide the match. Mefford Miller said that past Prop 400 revenues were leveraged to draw down federal dollars for transit infrastructure. Instead, cities and towns will have to leverage local or regional tax revenues to qualify for future federal grants. 
Even House Speaker Toma says the buffer around the Capitol and language banning Prop 400 revenues from funding extensions won't shut down light rail projects entirely. My guess is if they really wanted to do um, a, a light rail or something, even though I disagree with it, I'm sure they could find a way. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. For the month of July, the average overnight low temperature was nearly 91 degrees. That's the warmest overnight monthly average on record for Phoenix. And those hot nights are part of a climate change trend with concerning public health consequences. Catherine Davis-Young reports. St. Vincent de Paul's daytime heat relief center just south of downtown opens at 8 a.m., Zelfia Insunza, who works there, says during this heat wave, there's been a line at the door every morning. You can just see it on their faces, like they're just like overwhelmed or they just w can't wait to get in. She says lately a day's worth of cold water bottles has been getting passed out within a few hours to people exhausted after nights spent outside in this heat. Raquel Para has been coming here every day. It's just, it's just horrible. It's horrible. The heat, I can't breathe. Para was evicted from her apartment eight months ago and has been pitching a tent on a West Phoenix sidewalk ever since. She grew up in Arizona. She's used to the heat, but she's never had to sleep outside before. She says the hot nights have been so bad, she's even had to call an ambulance. I was throwing up um, the whole night. I just could, I was, I couldn't even eat nothing. I just couldn't put my head up. I was just out of it. The dehydration, um, it, it really got to me that day. That's exactly why public health advocates and climate experts worry about warming overnight temperatures. It really does come down to being a, a big health concern as far as your body resting and recovery from continuous heat. Jen Brady is a senior data analyst with the climate research group Climate Central. She says when the human body never gets a chance to cool down, even at night, that's when heat becomes much more dangerous. And nighttime temperatures this summer have been the hottest Phoenix has ever seen. Lows never dropped below the 90s for most of July. One night's low was 97. That's the hottest nighttime temperature in Phoenix history. Brady says that's consistent with a nationwide trend. Climate change is driving up summer daytime highs, but overnight lows are warming nearly twice as fast. We're seeing very few years where it's not increasing from year to year. In Phoenix, the trend is even more pronounced. Climate Central analysis shows nationwide summer nights have warmed about 2.6 degrees since 1970. Phoenix's nights have gotten nearly six degrees hotter in the same time period. And that is really a consequence of urbanization. David Hondula directs Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. He says part of the reason nights have warmed so dramatically in Phoenix is the urban heat island effect. The dark, hard surfaces in the city t tends to be really good at absorbing and retaining heat and slowly re-releasing it at night compared to the much brighter surrounding sandy desert environment. Since 1970, when summer nights were nearly six degrees cooler, the Phoenix metro area population has more than quadrupled. All that development brought machinery, cars, and bodies that warm up the city, and a lot of pavement that traps heat overnight. Meanwhile, as summer nights have warmed up, the region's unsheltered population has grown and heat-related deaths have skyrocketed. 
Hondula says one positive note about the urban heat island effect is it's an aspect of climate change municipalities could directly address. City government has its hands on the levers of urbanization to some extent, right? We, we regulate to some extent how the city will develop and grow over time and how it is redeveloped. Phoenix is expanding the use of cool pavement technology that reflects heat rather than trapping it. Hondula is also advocating for planting more trees across the city to increase shade and hopefully slow warming trends. For now, though, Phoenix's hottest nights ever drag on. In spite of record spending by the state and local governments on heat relief and homeless solutions, most Phoenix area cooling centers aren't open overnight, and there aren't enough shelter beds to bring all of Phoenix's unhoused people, like Raquel Para, inside. Para says she sprays herself with water at night and sleeps with wet towels on her, but it doesn't help much. You're still in the heat. Whether the sun goes down or not, it's still hot outside. She says she's been selling her plasma for extra cash and has just enough for a motel. I'm hoping that I can manage to, to um, scrape by to get in a room tonight. For at least one night this summer, she's going to try to get a break from the heat. Katherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Construction began this week on a new water pipeline in Mesa. As Catherine Davis-Young reports, it's part of an agreement between the city and the Gila River Indian community for Colorado River rights. Mesa already delivers some of its reclaimed wastewater to the Gila River Indian community for agricultural use, but the new pipeline will double the amount delivered. In exchange, Mesa will get some of the tribe's Colorado River allotment. Mesa Water Resources Director Chris Hassert says that's important because the city is growing and doesn't want to pump more groundwater. It helps us preserve our groundwater aquifer and rely more on renewable surface water. So there's a lot of benefits for our customers. Hassert says building the pipeline is also cheaper for Mesa than it would be to build infrastructure to use the reclaimed water within the city. The pipeline is expected to be complete in 2025. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. From KJZZ's The Show, here's what a real-life archaeologist feels about Indiana Jones. Co-host Lauren Gilger has that conversation. Well, you know that music. Harrison Ford is taking a final turn as Indiana Jones in the Dial of Destiny in theaters right now, giving fans of the dashing, daring archaeologist one more on-screen adventure. Like many kids in the 80s, our next guest grew up loving Indy, but unlike many kids who loved him, he actually became an archaeologist as well. Peter Parvanov is now an assistant professor at the National Archaeological Institute in Sofia, Bulgaria, and is an archaeologist himself. In a recent essay in Sapiens, he writes about his own love of Indiana Jones and what the fictional movies actually get right about archaeology. I spoke with him more about it. I didn't realize it at the time, but it had its appeal to me, was just traveling to all these different places and not just traveling as a tourist, not that that is a bad thing, but traveling with Mm -hmm. a purpose, searching for uh, and decoding some mystery. Of course, it works in real life slightly different. Yeah. 
it was this like uh, trying to connect with history in a in an immediate way and visiting these wonderful places that you can connect with yeah. major events and it was really fascinating. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. All right. So in the archaeology world, what do people think about Indiana Jones? Like, do, do other archaeologists who you know appreciate these movies or is there sort of a little skepticism? Maybe they make fun of it a little bit. <laughs> well, absolutely. We, have, uh, we got both. <laughs> but always. Uh, most of the people I've noticed, uh, like when they speak in public and <laughs> they tend to distance themselves from the movies, I guess not to disappoint the audience that we're not uh, all globetrotting adventurers. Ah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, we generally we enjoy it. A, a lot of my friends that are also archaeologists, we like the movie. Of course, we uh, make fun of some details and our hearts break every time when a nation temple is broken down ah. <laughs> and destroyed. But, but it's part of the fun, I guess. Yeah, part of the fun. Okay, so let's break it down then, because that's what you've looked at here pretty extensively, like whether or not the archaeology, the sort of history in these movies is is accurate in any way. First of all, are there any sort of really obvious ones that, that you have to point out right away that are completely wrong? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, it's a work of fiction, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, it's just taking some of the, yeah, existing historical narratives being taken, well, not literally, like the Holy Grail, it, that's the funny thing about the movies, mm -hmm. these movies in particular, because they very well realize that they discuss something that is built in the actual human culture and reality, and they, they twist it in this uh, fantastic way. Mm -hmm. And because I focus on medieval archaeology, for instance, I'm going to take the story with the, uh, with the Holy Grail from the Last Crusade. Okay. Quiz, quiz, who drinks the water I shall give him, says the Lord, will have a spring inside him welling up for eternal life. Let them bring me to your holy mountain in the place where you dwell, across the desert and through the mountain to the canyon of the crescent moon, to the temple where the cup that where the cup that holds the blood of Jesus Christ resides forever. The Holy Grail, Dr. Jones. The chalice used by Christ during the Last Supper that, that caught his blood at the crucifixion and was entrusted to Joseph of Arimathea. The Arthur legend. I've heard this bedtime story before. Uh, which is, of course, an entirely, like, how to say it, like a mythical artifact. It, it, there is a lot of uh, uh, medieval literature devoted to the quests and the search for the Holy Grail. It's intertwined with the Arthurian legends. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is what uh, also one of the things that I was trying to uh, say. The creators of the movie, they realize very well that the MacGuffin comes from a real place, but then it's uh, turned into something, something completely different for the sake of the movie mm. and the story that they were trying to tell. Is it at all likely that the Holy Grail would have been found in Egypt in a <laughs> in a pyramid? Yeah, absolutely not. Oh, <laughs> you're killing me. Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously, we have no evidence for the Holy Grail existing whatsoever. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, on the surprising side, though, I think for me, there are, it seems like, some ways in which they really get things right. Can you give us a few examples of that? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, that's exactly what uh, I wanted to focus in my essay uh, that you mentioned. And uh, the the very first point that that they actually get a lot of things right. And one of the things that I wanted to say that, uh, especially when you consider the ethical foundations of our discipline of the thing that we do, actually, the movies touch upon this in a very sensitive uh, Mm. manner. The the very first one that I always mentioned was uh, that archaeology is destructive. Uh, and it's something that we're taught already in the first year in the university, how, how you do field work and uh, for the importance of the documentation that we do and all of these procedures that we have doing field work, that uh, the protection of monuments sometimes goes to the destruction of the original and authentic context that preserved them. Mm-hmm. Of course, the movies change this in a more cinematic nature. have a, a section in this essay I have to ask you about in which you talk about how archaeologists can can punch Nazis. Is that right? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, uh, well, I'm not for physical violence, but definitely metaphorically archaeology needs to stand up to the abuse by extremist ideologies. And the Nazi regime has been a typical example in this respect. And in this sense, the movies uh, using the Nazis as uh, villains got this right, given the time period in which the movie is set, archaeology has been used for propaganda mm-hmm. by the Nazis and other regimes, uh, political regimes as well. And uh, these manipulations and abuses of history are something that is a reality of archaeology and history in general. And I believe that's something that uh, people should be aware of. And in our practice and in, in our profession, uh, we need to acknowledge this danger and when we can uh, stand against it. Yeah. So tell me, lastly then, Peter, I mean, do you have a favorite moment in these movies? Is there a moment that you watch over and over again or that you think about a lot in your work because it really strikes home with you in, in what you do? Yeah, I must say that every movie has its moment. It's really like, uh, reminds me, of this uh, enthusiasm that I had when I started studying it and it brings it back to me. One thing that I mentioned also in the text, it was at the end of the Temple of Doom, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think it's a generally controversial movie (laughs) uh, this day and age. But towards the end of it, there was this moment when Indiana Jones returns the sacred stone to the uh, villagers. Mm -hmm. He realizes the power of the stone that he's returning to them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is quite a profound realization of the social significance of what we can do for the protection of heritage, but also for the for the communication with uh, these living communities and uh, uh, the continuation of the traditions and their their ongoing life even today. All right. That is Peter Parvanov, assistant professor at the National Archaeological Institute in Sofia, Bulgaria, joining us to talk more about Indiana Jones. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure was mine. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news. 
The Creighton Elementary School District in Phoenix is in the midst of an investigation into its special education program, and it was a long time coming. As Bridget Dowd reports, it took the combined efforts of staff members, parents, and the district's governing board to convince the administration to investigate years of complaints. Gail Smith has spent years advocating for her now eight-year-old son who's enrolled in the Creighton Elementary School District. I have come to you tonight because my son's civil rights are being repeatedly violated not only by the school, but by the special education department. That's Smith speaking at a meeting of the district's governing board this summer. Her son Derek is a medically complex child who was born with a congenital heart defect. He's had multiple surgeries and has been in therapy since he was about six months old, from feeding therapy to occupational therapy to speech and language. As a toddler, Derek received services through the Arizona Early Intervention Program. When he was aged out of that at three years old, Gail had him screened by the school district, which determined that his deficits were not severe enough to qualify him for services. When Derek was four, one of his teachers contacted Gail, asking her to reach out to the district again. Because he was avoiding writing and coloring and painting, cutting with scissors, anything that involved fine motor, the fine motor process. The district sent an occupational therapist to screen Derek, who observed him on the playground, and said he didn't see any occupational therapy issues. But it wasn't a comprehensive evaluation. At that point, Derek was denied services once again. Gail even sought out a second opinion from another OT who said an evaluation was warranted. She brought that information back to the district, which still refused to evaluate her son. There's a very short window of when you can fix a child's handwriting if they have a fine motor delay. And we're quickly approaching the end of that window. He still avoids writing. At one point, I was told, why does he need to write? Why can't he just use talk to text? We live in a technology world. And Gail isn't the only person at Creighton to have had complaints like this. Amy McSheffrey is a member of the district's governing board who says she first heard complaints from staff members in January of 2022. Kids were being denied screening or evaluations who perhaps shouldn't have been denied. And she says those staff members couldn't figure out why they were being denied. McSheffrey started to bring up the issue at board meetings and asked for it to be added to a future agenda. And then that's where my frustration really kicked in because it took months for it to become an agenda item. Meanwhile, more parents started testifying at the meetings. We had parents, you know, sobbing. It's disturbing to hear, especially when it seems as though no one wants to address it. McSheffrey pushed for an investigation, and finally with the transition of a new superintendent this July, it looks like that's going to happen. Why is this happening? Is it intentional? Is it just an oversight? Uh, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. We, we definitely need to figure out the why so that we can prevent it from happening in the future. The situation is frustrating, but not unheard of, especially for students of color like Derek. Amanda Glass specializes in education issues as an attorney at the Arizona Center for Disability Law. She says they're seeing more and more schools refusing to evaluate students, and there are a number of possible explanations. You know, there have been lawsuits in the past about kids of color being over-identified as having disabilities when, in fact, they're just operating in a system that is not set up for their success. So that's, that is one issue. And there could be funding reasons, too. Even though schools get federal funding for students who are determined to have disabilities, Glass says it's often not enough to meet the needs of those kids who are given their own individualized education program. Once you've identified a student and you've created an IEP, 
you're legally obligated to provide those services, whether you have sufficient funding or not. She says for some students, schools get funded at a level that's more than what they end up requiring, but... There's a lot of kids with behavior issues who might need a one-on-one aid or to be in a special classroom with a lower student-to-teacher ratio. Those things can get really expensive. And ultimately, parents often don't know their rights, and there's an access to justice issue. School districts always have legal representation, whereas parents may not. And Glass says it's an extremely complicated area of law. So to expect parents, you know, lay people to understand this is really unfair. That means even an affluent stay-at-home parent who can spend a lot of time advocating for their child may struggle, not to mention working families for whom English is a second language. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis. This week kicks off the full enforcement of the Biden administration's ban on most incandescent light bulbs. The White House finalized the rule last year, reversing the Trump administration's rollback of the standards. The ban will penalize bulb makers, suppliers, and sellers up to $542 per violation. It does not target consumers. Energy Department estimates project it will decrease carbon emissions by 222 million metric tons in 30 years and save consumers nearly $3 billion per year on their utility bills as they shift to more efficient and longer-lasting LEDs. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration's 2015 Residential Energy Consumption Survey, households in mountain states like Arizona have fewer light bulbs overall than the national average, but use about 6% more incandescent bulbs. Nicholas Gerbis, KJCC News, Phoenix. And finally, in Fronteras News. A new suit alleges Customs and Border Protection is illegally turning away asylum seekers who don't have an appointment through the smartphone app CBP-1. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. CBP-1 appointments are available in limited numbers at a handful of ports of entry border-wide. It's now the main avenue migrants are supposed to use to enter the U.S. to seek asylum. Rights activists have long argued the app is glitchy and not a feasible option for everyone, like people facing immediate danger or those without a smartphone. Gianna Borato with the American Immigration Council is an attorney in the suit. We have 10 individual named plaintiffs. The majority of them were turned away Um, at the San Isidro port of entry or other ports of entry along the the border between Tijuana and San Diego. Barato says that goes against U.S. law and CBP's own policies, which say a person is allowed to seek asylum at the border with or without an appointment through the app. Elisa Rasnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.